0: Welcome back to another Commodity Conversations. This week we'll be chatting to Brett Hoskins, or Grain Growers. We'll be asking him about what grain growers' organisation would like from the politicians, now that we've got a new parliament. And also have a little bit of a chat about the importation of grains, which has been an interesting topic of recent times. Again, before we just jump into it, uh, we just got to say a big thank you to our sponsors. Uh, sponsors for this podcast are Cleavers Meats. Uh, Cleavers Meats produce some fantastic products uh, for for consumers within Australia. They've got some of the best uh, best cuts of meat, but also they've got a lot of packaged goods and almost ready to eat goods. Uh, things like they've got fantastic sausages, got fantastic chicken nuggets. It's all well produced stuff. Comes from good farms, uh, all Australian grown, and uh, yeah, definitely fantastic value for money. And you're getting a really high quality product. Uh, that you can use uh, for you know for uh, barbecues etc. Next to me in calls, I recommend you pick up some Cleavers meat products, uh, and uh, yeah, you'll love them. Uh, you can almost guarantee it. If you are enjoying these podcasts, uh, we just ask one thing, and that is that you give it as well a subscribe, uh, but B as well as that, if you could uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And uh, if you if you like it even more than that, you don't you want to spend even more than a couple of seconds clicking a clicking a star, leave us a review, let us know what you think, and if you ever got any feedback, drop us an email, send us a tweet, uh, and yeah, if you have got any ideas, we would love to hear them. Thanks very much. I want to introduce you to Brett Hoskins. Brett is a grain grower from Quambitip in Victoria, and he is also a, uh, the Chair of Grain Growers and formerly the Vice President of VFF. So hello, Brett. Thanks for coming on to the call.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: Well, what, uh, First and foremost, the same conversation that we have with every farmer. What was the rainfall like over the weekend?
1: Yeah, look, oh, it, it was hard work getting it out of the clouds on the weekend, but uh, we scored about 9.5 mil here. Would have loved to have seen a little bit more, but um, stayed dry for the footy on the weekend, and then started on Saturday night just after the seniors is finished. Um, uh, the local footy team probably would have preferred it started a little bit earlier the way the game went, but now that's <laughs> at local footy for you. But um, yeah, look, it's so far for us in in Victoria. Probably, I, I think most grain growers have had a bit of a start, probably hoping for a bit more, but um. Compared to the rest of the country, I think we're pretty fortunate,
0: Andrew. Yeah, you're fortunate compared to us analysts in Ballarat, where it was snowing this morning. So, yeah, well, we didn't
1: get there. No, nah, you don't want
0: that one, especially if you if you're going to be working with sheep tomorrow. So, yeah. I guess the idea behind this podcast, today's one, was really you know we're a week out from the election. The sky hasn't yet fallen in. We're still still all here. And we thought we'd do it with Brett, a little bit of a chat about, you know, the, the, I guess a post-election podcast, chatting about grain growers and, and what their views are for, for the new government, what they want them to do. It was probably a bit of a surprise to most people that we've got the same government we had two weeks ago. Hey, but there has been some big changes, Brett. New Ag Minister, that was announced yesterday, just in time for this podcast. Yeah,
1: yeah and look, that's exciting. No first female Ag Minister, um, which is sort of a real trailblazer, I suppose, and, um, and probably for a, a side of government that has been accused in the past of not having its gender balance quite right. I think um, uh, she's certainly someone who you would say was chosen on her merits rather than just being a female, too, which is really good. And, um, uh, you know, and it's exciting time forward. We know women think about the world different than men, and, um, and I think that's probably what we need in ag is um, a few less of us middle-aged white men and a few more... Um, creative thinking in, the, in the,
0: um, the process. I think I think Bridget was always pretty impressive, like I listened to her quite a few times during the Senate estimates last year, and she was very impressive in her in her questioning, so I think good luck to her, and I reckon she'll do a pretty good job. She did a good job for sport, so that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's always pretty handy. So, so sure. Brett, what's the, uh, what's your view? Like, I, I've picked a few things out of the grain growers, I guess, list of priorities, that we can maybe chat about and one of them is uh, telecommunications we're 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 big avid users of of telecoms we've we're lucky we're in the you know a regional city we've got nbn 100 megabits per second and uh, we need that to run our business but what about from a farmer's point of view What, what are grain growers looking for well i guess what are you wanting bridget to give you
1: yeah, it's one of the things that uh, are, and, and it's quite key to Bridget actually because she came from that telecommunications portfolio um, where she had oversight over over mobile black spot funding, over uh, NBN rollouts and all that. So she's well versed in telecommunications and, and particularly country areas. But it's one that keeps coming up everywhere, Andrew. Like we we go out and talk to growers, you know, pick a rural area across Australia and, and you go and talk to them and say, you know, what's on your mind, what's troubling you? And they say telecommunications—the the lack of consistency, the multiple providers, the <laughs> the phone dropping in and out, um, the NBN that that isn't quite what we felt like we were promised back when NBN was first um, bandied around—and um, you know—and then I, I just on the telly last night see you know talk of the the rollout of of five G and um. They showed the little map on the TV screen of where, you know, which customers would get it get it first, and and I look at it and I think they're not the customers that need it. They're the ones in metropolitan areas who, um, as, as you say, have high-speed broadband already.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and there's a lot of work to do in that space.
0: And I guess that's the thing. Like, you know, now and now more so than ever, telecommunications like is important. Like we. You just look inside you've been sitting the last couple of weeks you look inside one of those headers it's just full of technology and it's and it's only in increasing the the requirements to be able to transfer data because you know in the future we are going to be relying on exporting our data out out with those rural towns to get advice you know even even likes of headers you're know, getting diagnostics from john deere overseas potentially and you know we talk about this as our data revolution in AgTech, tech and i guess without you know that infrastructure you know it's it's not it's not particularly uh, possible and even from i guess even a safety point of view like having access to a mobile phone is important for those sort of you know services in terms of emergency services that type of thing
1: it's yeah absolutely and and look at you know you, there, there's a safety aspect there's this, you know the the education like our, our kids you know like my kids go to a local high school in bort and um and I guess the the access to different subject choices and that sort of thing, we're relying more and more on, on telecommunications for that. Um, you know, uh, French by distance education and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and th- th- it's almost becoming commonplace in rural schools, but we don't have the infrastructure that they can go home and do their homework at home in, in many cases um and then then we talk about the in the paddock um and that's really what we're talking about with a lot of the um the needs of i think rural australia or farming agriculture in particular is it's not so much getting it to the business premises you know maybe the house or whatever our business is actually taking place out in the middle of a paddock um you know that's where our crops are growing that's where our our livestock are moving that's where we're weighing sheep where we're where we're shearing and recording data that's where we're we're you know, sending drones across, potentially monitoring crop um, growth or biomass or pasture, and um, you know, and, and it's where we're making decisions about, uh, I guess, how we how we're better stewards of our land, of our soil, and of our environment. And yet we don't quite have, have the full suite of tools that we we need to really take advantage of it. And um, I feel like there's a real piece there that would be a real if we could get this telecommunications and connectivity piece right. I feel like it'd be a real turning point for agriculture in Australia. Um, I, I met a guy once uh, a few years back, and, and he had little sensors on the back of sheep. And um, he started out, you know, with the, the idea that they had wild dogs coming and um, mm. you know attacking the sheep, and it would trigger when the sheep started to move, you know, abnormally, and um, send an SMS to his phone. But taking it a step further, he can then monitor the body temperature of the sheep, so he can actually know when a, when a sheep gets sick before it actually is visibly showing any signs of being sick, and and in terms of animal welfare, that, that's huge for for what it could do for, for our industry, and I feel like this is the next step. And we're just not quite got the not quite got the connectivity piece right that would enable us to do this, you know, kind of take this next leap. And um, yeah, I feel like it'd be a game changer.
0: No, nah, it's it's definitely having that backbone of infrastructure to enable those you know those type of assets to become available. I think even though you touched upon like the schools, which is the social type of thing, which you know, is important because well, we need the kids to have good education. But I guess like I, I, can, I can view it from the point of view of coming from the UK. And we've we found that there's been a lot more people moving from the cities into country areas because they have access to the internet at a decent quality. So they can actually continue to do the same work they do in a city but in a nice country environment where they can relax a bit more, not be stuck in traffic for, you know, five or or six hours a week or more, actually. So I think it's like it is, you know, there is both that sort of technological and business, you know, benefits, but it's also that social aspect which sometimes is kind of almost forgotten about at at times. So I guess what would be, you know, you pointed out that... um, you know, this is a target for grain growers, what would be the key metric, you know, to say that it's been successful or, or that the, yeah, the Minister's sure. been successful?
1: Yeah, we, we saw this whole telecommunications review where they, um, they travelled the country, uh, the government did last year, and they, they spoke to um, industry groups, they spoke to individuals, they, they tried to visit local communities and learn about their, their needs. Um, and, and we have seen the commitment from both the, um, you know, all the, the current government or new government and um and and also the opposition, Labour, as well made the same commitment and that was to implement the, the full recommendations of that telecommunication review. And and that that's really good. That means there'll be a roll out of it. More black spot funding, which is a, a programme that has made a real difference to um rural rural areas. And we're also uh, um so so I think it was hundred and sixty million committed by the coalition for um another round of another two rounds of mobile black spot funding. Um, that's where the, the government partners with, with telecommunication providers, but also sometimes local government or state governments actually doing those identified black spots. But then they, they also, uh, announced $60 million, which will go towards, um, kind of a regional connectivity program, I like think they call it, um, which, which will be about making sure people have the ability to access the, the telecommunication solutions that are available. So, um, it, it's going out and, uh, you whether it be teaching people how to, you know, get the most out of the like that full data set that is on the new John Deere header or the, the case header, or or whether it's simply about you know connecting to the, the satellite broadband and being able to, you know, do whatever that will allow you to do, um, and, and knowing that there are limitations to that to that in terms of speed, um, but you know, still be being able to capture the the full, I guess, um, the full potential for what you can in your area. So I think that'll be really important too, just making sure that um, uh, people have access to to those tools that or those steps that they can take themselves to be able to try and achieve something more. That all being said and done, I still think there's a there's a piece more because one day you know things like the black spot programs they're they're really good and it's been a great success, but it still relies on some level of a, a commercial business case for a telecommunication provider. Even if the government's putting in 80% of the funding that the telco's only got to put in 20%, they've still got to have a business case for that that 20%. And, you know, as, as we push it further and further, we're going to get to the point where that business case, that commercial business case isn't there anymore. But the people still are and the industry still is. And so we need to find a way to be creative to just to, to push into that next frontier and um, and get that connectivity right across the country. Um, and as you talk about... You know if we can create the connectivity if we can create the access then perhaps then the people will come um you know it's a little bit like that was that movie you know if you build it then they'll come <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little bit like that perhaps so you know i still think we need an ambitious government who will really push ahead with that and, um, and this government now they've been re-elected when none of us thought they would that so they've got the mandate to act so let's see it happen
0: yeah and i think that's that's a key thing i think when when we come across these type of issues you know, technology advances at a rare knot, but I guess in rural areas we actually just need to get to the starting point, and in a lot of areas we're not at that starting point, so we're we're actively falling behind because we have had that, you know, lack of of infrastructure investment over the past or twenty odd years or so in communications, but also I can't there's there's an element where you can't really blame them too much because you know Australia is a pretty pretty big continent, and so there is always going to be that. Issue of distance, but we're getting there somewhere. I think slowly and surely. So we we'll just have to see how it goes. Let's move on to something else. This last year, you know, it won't be a surprise to anyone anywhere in the world that this has been a pretty terrible year for grain production in Australia, apart from Western Australia it had a good year. Yep. So one of your big policies, or one of the things that you've been, I guess, you and your team have been advocating for, is is improved insurance. You got anything more, more, more to add on that, or what, what's the idea yeah, behind uh,
1: that? Uh, yeah, it, it's a really interesting one. Um, this idea of what, what we call a multi-peril crop insurance program, um, you know, and, and potentially, you know, one day it doesn't have to be just crops; it could be livestock production. That, but there's been some modelling done around crops, and, and we're really keen to see that, that agenda rolled out, so and we can got something to build on and grow on. Um, it's more than just drought. Like you know, we, we talk about it when we're coming out of a drought, and and there is no doubt that the east coast of Australia has been absolutely hammered um, with, with the season that was last year. And you know, there's still a lot of a lot of bruises being felt. There's still a lot of areas that are certainly, in fact, a larger part of the east coast is still, you wouldn't say, is out of that drought. Um, you know, we, we've also seen a massive, you know, devastation of flooding up in northern Queensland. We mainly uh, a couple of seasons ago we saw a massive frost event in the Wimmera down in Victoria that that wiped out, um, well, not just their legume crops, but also canola and, and cereals and, and that as well. And <clears throat> So it's thinking about, well, we know the climate's changing. N- nobody's denying that. Well, I don't think anybody's denying it anymore. Oh, there, th- might th- be there's, odd. A, there's
0: a few people <laughs> denying it, but most... But
1: we do know it's changing. We, we do know we're going to see real these real extreme events um, and whether they'll become more frequent or whether they'll become more extreme, either way it's going to be a, a pretty severe impact on on agriculture and it's, it's thinking about, yeah, you know what, we need to do what we can to help manage the climate, you know, to, um, try and slow down the, the rate of climate change. So if, if riding your push bike to work or turning your lights up a bit earlier, you know, they're all good things and we should be encouraging reducing our carbon emissions. But what are we doing to help those that are already having to deal with the full effect of it? That being, you know, in, in most cases, our farmers. So the idea of the multi peril crop insurance scheme, it, it's something that works overseas really well. Um, and I guess it's in Australia, there's been a couple of attempts at it. Um, some sort of, some have done reasonable for a little while, but um, they probably just haven't grown up to that, you know, to the fully fledged sort of, you know, you, you take out insurance on your new uh, Holden Commodore and you could go to a number of providers and they're all pretty competitive because they all know that a driver like you is, you know, they know what the chance of you having an accident is. They know what the, the likely, you know, cost they'll have to pay out if it and They kind of know the odds that they're playing with as insurers. And when it comes to multi-peril crop insurance, they don't have that experience in the market and they don't have that knowledge. So we've got to find a way for the uh, the reinsurers to kind of put them on steroids, build up that knowledge as quickly as they, they can so that they can actually start offering commercially um, uh, viable insurance products. Uh, and I guess to the point we'd almost say, you know, this year if a grower said, you know what, I've come off a pretty tough year, maybe I've got a bit of rain to, to start the season, but I'm still not 100% convinced I want to take out a policy just to, to manage that risk. This year if a farmer wanted to do that, he can't do it. There's no provider out there because, um, they just haven't been able to to get the backing from their reinsurers. They haven't been able to get their products out there, um, and it's just a juvenile. It, it's like leaving a leaving a child to grow up on its own. You know, we all need a little bit of help at some time in our life, and um, and in those early stages, this is this is where multi peril crop insurance really needs some help. So we put a proposal to both sides of government in this election um, of 150% tax deductibility, with the idea that that would create that critical mass of growers that, you know, it's that incentive that, oh, gee, it's coming up the end of the financial year, I've got a bit of a tax problem. Hey, I can protect my next season's crop and, you know, help solve my tax problem at the same time. And maybe we just see that that critical mass get into these programs and maybe, you know, through that, we'd see the the products kind of mature and grow up and we'd see a, a greater spread of growers involved in it. I'd imagine every WA grower would be, Wanting to get involved in something as a way of managing their risk and um, and managing their tax as well, and and at the same time we'd create that critical mass which would give these insurance programs the opportunity to thrive. Yep. Um, you know that proposal has been put forward. It hasn't been met as enthusiastically as we'd like, but <laughs> we'll still continue to work on that one.
0: But but I think it's like when when you think about insurance generally, it's very hard for an insurance company to offer something that year after year people aren't signing up for it. Or, you know, anecdotally, I've heard from a couple of insurers that they've offered insurance. And when they do offer this type of multi-parallel crop insurance, they tend to get hit. You know, and we've seen it in the past, they've been hit by uh, paying out a lot of claims in, in, in a short period of time. So it leaves a bit of a, you know, a hard taste in the mouth. So you need insurance in general. You need, you need a widespread of people applying for it because you need some people who aren't getting paid out. And that's been, I guess, some of the issue that some insurers have had. But if you've got this 150% tax, you know, benefit, then yeah, it's a, definitely an encouragement to 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 give it a shot. And I think my my for you as well is that with these multiple crop insurances, and you know, whether it's multiple per crop insurance or well derivatives, they have to be easier to take out, easier to understand, and and require a little bit less paperwork. You know, we've seen some of them in the past they have been pretty, pretty hard to actually get a, even get a quote from. And it ends up going into that too hard basket for a lot of farmers. And that's where I've generally heard from people. But definitely if you're getting a good tax benefit, then, it, you know, it gives you, you know, a bit more, a bit more of a push to, 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 to follow that behaviour and actually take out insurance. And it, then it just becomes, like I, think I know a couple of guys who have taken out insurance on the, on the West Coast just year after year. And they just said, well, it just becomes part and parcel of our business. Same as, same as, you know, hail and fire insurance. But the other one you've gotten here when you're at election priorities, which is one of my favorite um, risk management tools that the farmers have to, to weather the storm of, of bad years is, is farm management deposits.
1: Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep.
0: And and they're, they're pretty you know, powerful tool. And we can see them in the last six months have worked really well in that, you know, Deposits or balances of, of FMDs and on the East Coast have dropped over the last quarter, which basically tells you that you know people are using them the way they're supposed to use them, which is withdrawing money from them in the bad years and putting money in in the good years. So, so you had a few other things in there for, for the grain growers for for how they can be improved. What, what what's what's the details on that?
1: Yeah, look, and and they have been a really good product, um, and and I think. Grain farmers in particular, you know, it's probably around about this time of year that they're starting to draw them out um, because, you know, last year's crop, they would have got in the ground with, with um, funds from the previous year's harvest, but not having had a harvest last year, the bill's starting to come in from a cropping program, fertiliser, chemicals, seed, that sort of thing um, this year. But around about now is when they'll probably starting start to be accessing those funds and using them to um, ensure that this year's crop has got the best chance it can possibly have as well. Um, one of the challenges that we have had shared with us by a lot of a lot of um, growers is that you know, and it, it's kind of one of these perverse outcomes. Uh, you know, as, as farmers age and that, um, we kind of get to that period of uh, you know that that intergenerational transfer where the son wants to take off on the farm and the, and the father wants to retire. Um, the nature of these deposits is that they had to be taken out in an individual's name, um, so it makes it very difficult for a, an older farmer. To retire without having to, you know, draw down that that um, money and and effectively make it taxable in the year, and, and if, if it's a year where you don't need to draw it down, then there's not a lot of flexibility. Kind of, a you're taking that that safety net that you've you've accumulated away from the son or, or daughter who might be taking on the farm, but also you're making it very very difficult for or well, adding a huge tax burden to someone who's wanting to retire and and give the opportunity to to the next generation to come on and do what they will with the farm. So. One of the things we suggested is, is some form of intergenerational transfer where where the deposit stays with the farm business. so if the farm business continues on then the deposit stays with the farm business, and you know the, the older father who would be able to retire out, um, out of the business without that, without that burden of extra tax, but also um, being able to leave that safety net there for a, a son or daughter taking on the farm and, and and that can be pretty handy when when you do get someone taking on a you know a, a new business. Um, and possibly spend a bit of their own equity or don't have a lot built up behind them. Um, to have that safety barrier, safety net passed on as well, it would be pretty valuable, I would think. And, um, and give them the confidence to, to, I guess, explore all those, those opportunities that youth enthusiasm bring and, um, you know, read up on the latest research and think about how they can farm more productively and help, and better and, and kind of push the barriers further. So, um, that, that's been one that's been shared by growers with us. As, it's something that that would be great and that that's something that we've talked to government about uh again it's one that's on the to be worked through list um but we we have seen you know we, we've seen a lot of change in this space we saw david little come out and talk to the banks and and even you know flex a bit of a bit of political muscle as it were with the banks and um and enable the offset of um farm management deposits against business loans in, on farms which has been good as well because it take uh give us still that incentive to build up that farm management deposit and mm. use it the way it's intended, um, you know, and at the same time you're still kind of counteracting the, the build-up of debt in your own business too. Um, so that, that's that been a really good step forward as well. Um, I, I feel like it, it is a space that, that does need a bit more work and I think we're going to see that. I, it was really interesting seeing in the Cabinet announcement David Littleproud be given this uh, portfolio of, months um, drought and all that also rural finance I think it was named. And I'd imagine it's these sort of things that he'll be dealing with. he'll be talking about those innovative ways that we can um, give more business tools to farmers to help them grow and expand and develop their businesses and I think farm management deposits will get a fair bit of airtime in that portfolio. I reckon
0: <coughs> sorry I reckon David's pretty well well suited to that type of role as well because I think before he was a politician he worked for one of the banks as a rural manager.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. That. So, um, so he does seem to, having having worked there, he seemed pretty keen to, to sort of um, take it up to the banks as well. He, <laughs> so I don't know ever getting back at a former employer, there, but he, he's,
0: um, he's got all the inside knowledge of what used to happen. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but reading through like reading through all that with the FMDs, the insurance, the telecommunications, and and all the other policies, it's not as an industry we're not really asking. For huge things, it's only a lot of a lot of what we got is already there. It's just a lot of tinkering, and I think it's pretty good. And I think it, a lot of it's probably quite achievable with, with some some good lobbying. So it's pretty pretty interesting stuff. And, I, and the succession planning is one that always comes up as being being a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare. And luckily enough, I'll i give us a plug. We've got a podcast uh, coming out in a week or two about succession planning with with Mike Stevens of Meridian Agriculture. So that's a that's a little bit of plug for us, but I guess I guess for you, Brett, you've got four daughters, so succession planning over the next twenty years will be, you know, interesting, to to say the least. But yeah. I thought I thought maybe we sort of we've been talking for about twenty five minutes or so. I thought I'd throw in a curly one. Yep. Imports of grains, that's been a, an interesting one over the last fortnight or so. We weren't. We, we knew it was always on the radar over the last uh, sort of what well, since really the drought hit, but we didn't really expect it to happen because, well, prices had already dropped in Australia, and that's quite an interesting one. What, what's what's the grain growers, I guess, policy on, what's your views on on grain imports?
1: Yeah, it's a really tricky space. Um, it, it's something we started talking about as an organisation back in probably the start of November last year when we were first approached by Manildra about, um, you know the, the fact that they had a permit, um, you know, application in for a permit to um, to import grain. Um, they were very worried about the security of, of uh, grain that's suitable for their their gluten processing. They've got a large gluten market in the United States, I believe, and um, you know that they process it at, at Nowra, um at their Shoalhaven plant, and they, they were very concerned about their ability to attract the right the suitable grain or the right type of grain for, to keep that plant operating throughout the year um, in the volumes that they require uh at that stage you know i think there was about seven or eight applications in i think when now uh we might have 11 in uh, have been in uh, and i think three of them have been approved that uh, that i'm aware of have been approved at, at this point in time there was another two approved at the end of last week um it's a really tricky one because you know as much as the grower in me says you know what, we're pretty good at growing grain here in Australia. We've seen the WA guys just produce a cracking crop and we've seen a lot of that grain come around for use here on the East Coast. And, you know, I don't, the, the grower in me says, I, I don't see any need at all for, for grain to come into, from overseas. I don't, I don't see it justifying the, the potential risk uh, um, around biosecurity and that. And more than anything, I just don't like it. But but the reality is we, um, we're at the moment, you know, dealing with, with other governments about wanting to get grain into their countries and and we don't want them holding back just because they say, I know, but we've got to look after our farmers first. Um, You know, if we can provide a product that's a good quality product and there's people in that country saying they want to use it, um, we sit back and we say, we should be able to get it in there because our grain's pretty good. So, um, you know, I I can sort of see the flip side as well. Um, Not that I like it by any means. I feel one of the things in this whole debate, or there's a couple of things in the whole debate around imports, um, I don't think the Department of Ag have done a great job of um, of talking about how they are going to manage biosecurity and, and letting growers know that they're in control of that. Um, I think growers, the growers I talk to, they have a lot of concerns and more than anything, they have a lot of questions that they just don't feel like they're getting answers from. And, um, And Manildra have gone some way, um, with some of their statements towards trying to, um, I guess, um, reassure growers that that they have the biosecurity, uh, line covered and, um, that they've done whatever they can. I mean, nothing's perfect, but they've done what they can to, to minimize any risk, um, of any outbreak of whether it be disease, pest, weed, whatever. Uh, I don't think the Department of Ag have reassured growers enough, um, that growers have confidence in, in what they've done and the role they've played. So I feel like there's there's aid as a role for the Department of Ag to step up and, and talk a little bit more openly and honestly with growers and, and share the process and the journey they've gone through. And the other side of it is I, I don't think we've... We, we're talking very much about the here and now and and um, the fact that we need these imports because we need to keep this plant going and um, and for whatever other reason we might need future, um, other imports in the future. I don't think we've talked very strategically about all right, we're in this situation now, but but how do we manage our industry better in the future so that we don't land in this situation again? Um, one of the proposals that's come come forward, and it is just one proposal. I think on a, I think it, it'll be part of a suite of measures that need to be looked at, but um, around just better transparency of um, what grain is where in Australia, um, whether it be on farm, whether it be in bulk handler storages or whatnot. And just making sure industry and growers can be aware of what grains out there and and its suitability to be used um so that in the case of Manildra they'd have a much clearer picture about whether they'd be able to access the grain they, they require for their plant <coughs> Excuse me. um I feel like that could be that could be one step towards just just i guess more of that strategic discussion and.
0: And I think that's when you look at mandatory stocks reporting, we've got that in the U.S. and it's it's a fairly handy tool. But and I do see some criticisms from people about mandatory reporting. Some of them think it's it's bad for growers, and it's, it puts too much power in the in the hands of the big trading companies. But at the end of the day, you tend to find that the big trading companies probably have you know pretty good sources of information themselves. What it does is it just I guess it, it evens the playing field, and there will be times that, in in my view, that it will benefit traders, but it's also going to be times when it's going to definitely benefit growers, and I think that's where it just it just provides that information. It's and if we people, people have been saying, oh, but you could have bought this high protein wheat from elsewhere in in Australia, but the reality is, yes, we can anecdotally say that, but we can't definitely put a you know a data centric number down and say. Yes, we could have bought H one or H two wheat in the quantities that Manelda require. You know, six-figure type uh, volumes. So <clears> I think <throat> you know we, we we're fans of mandatory reporting. We think it will be you know add extra layer of transparency to the industry. And and yeah, you're right as well. Like the the it's probably I can see from Minelda's point of view, it's it's a tough tough one because. it's you know, they have to keep their business running. And there's, and there's plenty of stock feeders out there, you know, feedlots, piggeries, uh, egg producers, who have struggled through, you know, pretty difficult times over the last 12 months. And and we do have a benefit of having, typically we have a pretty strong domestic basis on the East Coast, but we need domestic producers or domestic consumers to still be in existence to get that, you know, year in, year out for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So it's kind of a case of you know, at times we might have to allow imports to ensure that the long-term survival of of those domestic consumers of grain. So you know, it is it is interesting, and I, and I can understand it's, it's difficult. But as long as the biosecurity is in place, we need to you know, ensure that's that's upheld.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting the um, the stocks information because a lot of a lot of growers um, express concern to us to us about it and. And they're right to do so. Um, you know, we always want to hear about, um, you know, the, the, the thoughts and feelings of growers out there. But it, it's interesting because we're what are we now? We're around about the end of May. I reckon probably by about the middle to late July, we'll suddenly see all these surveys come out from the different grain companies where they will offer growers an iPad or an SD <laughs> or something like that. If you're filling this survey about your know, what crop you've got in the ground and how it's tracking, and and you know they're out and about and they're seeing how to crop the crops are yielding. So. They do actually have, as you say, they do actually have a pretty good picture, and, and and often growers, as growers, we're giving up that information on the chance of winning an iPad or, a, or on the chance of winning a, a you know a fridge or something like that. Um, so maybe, too, we need to be a little bit more, uh, as growers, we're, and I, I've been guilty of it myself, so I'm not, certainly not judging anyone else here, because I love those surveys as well, and one day I'm going to win that iPad. Wow. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, or a fridge freezer, for nothing too. So um, we need to think really, really carefully as growers about just how valuable our, our information is and, and how it can be better used to benefit all industries, not just the guy offering the, the one in a thousand chance of an iPad. That's
0: that's always been my view. Like my background was IT. It's always been if you're giving away data, you should always give it away provided you get something back from it. You know, we don't let somebody adjust on our land without getting some monetary value from it and whether it's a case of you know you provide the data you get some information back which can be a value to the farm or whether it is you know actually a payment a straight payment you know a dollar a ton extra for your uh, uh for for providing some information which is useful to that trading company or storage and handling company so it's you know like i do think the more data the better we just have to be you know, i guess <laughs> careful about the validity of that data and ensuring that it's you know, has a, has a proper purpose, not just giving the data out there for a free iPad or yeah, one in a exactly thousand right. chance of an iPad.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, one day I'll win it, Andrew, don't you worry about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, but you've got four girls, so you'll never go to use it anyway.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right.
0: <laughs> so, so, so Brett, it's been good, good to have a chat um, and thanks for, for taking the time. I think we've gone on for 35 minutes. We could probably go on for another hour. It's plenty of other topics uh, we can go on we can maybe do it again next month
1: yeah yeah, yeah. look anytime that'd be good
0: but yeah. I just wanted to give another plug You know, not that I'm an advertiser yeah any, any young farmer or depends on what you classify as young uh, but if you're between 18 and 40 I recommend you come to sunny Ballarat on the 22nd to 24th of July because you guys are running your innovation generation conference yep uh, I've been there for I think I've been in there for the last three or four uh, conferences and it's always been fantastic time, good presenters, good people to meet and network with from across the country. And uh, it's actually one of the conferences that's actually pretty cheap, like it's it's really good value for money. So without blowing smoke up you guys, it's, you know, definitely get onto it and, and, and sign up.
1: Yeah, no, it is good, Andrew. Um, I, I kind of, and I'll get in trouble from our team for saying this, but I, I kind of, it's like, a bit like harmony for farmers. Um, not in the sense that you'll necessarily meet your life partner. If you do, you've got my blessing. That's great. But it's more about bringing like-minded people, connecting them up and building connections with, you know, oh, you're a, you're involved in the oak trade, I'm growing grain or I'm, I'm transporting grain or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, you do livestock and, And I've got an interest in livestock too, and bringing those like-minded people together and giving them the opportunity to build connections that that might last a lifetime in the industry. And, and, you know, throughout shared learning, we we really grow together. So, um, and I think that's really important for young people starting out too, because, you know, believe it or not, I do remember when I was a young farmer and and I had some crazy ideas and to have people I can bounce them off that... That you know, kind of similar age and and, and enthusiasm for the industry as me, I, I think is really really valuable. So um, yeah, by all means, get on our website w dot com. dot au and um and check out innovation generation and also find a link to um all of our election asks are on the website. So, um, you know, it'd be really good if if growers had a bit of a look at what's out there and um. And I guess saw, you know, maybe the opportunity to get involved in, in our organisation a little bit more and, and um, contribute to some of the, some of these policy outcomes as well.
0: Yep, and if you do make it to Ballarat, you can have a beer with me in Brett and we can discuss all of what we've talked about in detail. Maybe
1: a podcast from Innovation Generation, Andrew. It could be the way to go.
0: Maybe the one at two o'clock in the morning, podcast <laughs> recorded live. That
1: might not be the one to record, but <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs>
0: Right, Obric. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming along and and chatting. And uh, hope the rest of the season pans out well for you and everyone else in Australia. And uh, yeah, thanks for giving me some insights.
1: Yeah, no thanks, Pete, for having me. Andrew, really enjoyed it. Yes.